Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. My neighbor, and especially my friend, Jean Monjoy, is joining us today. Jean is a social worker. She has a master's in social work. She is a licensed clinical social worker. She's been in the field of social work for a number of years, and so we would call her a professional caregiver. I'm a family caregiver. Jean is a professional caregiver. We met in our neighborhood through the neighborhood Facebook page and struck up a conversation that's been going on since day one, since the first time we said hello. We have met Jean just exactly where she is in her life right now. We both are sitting on the floor in her living room while Cora, her two-year-old, is playing in the background. Jean will speak candidly with us today about burnout from the professional level. I think as family caregivers, we can apply a lot of that to our own life. We may see ourselves in some of the things that she is discussing today as related to burnout and um, may consider some of the strategies she proposes to make changes in our own life to alleviate the strain and the stress of caregiver burnout. Please let us know what you think about our podcast today and any of our podcasts. You can send us a message. You can upload a voice recording. Um, you can send us an email, whatever works for you. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you again for joining us today. Hi, Jean. Hi, Mary. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Who are we here with today? Um, we are here with my toddler, Cora. Cora will be two in two weeks. Dad. Yeah. Yeah. She Cora's got something to say about this, too. Dad. Daddy's at work, yes. Daddy's at work. And mommy's home. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about why you're home, Jean. So I have spent, I don't know, 15 years in some form or fashion as a social worker. Um, But I decided my toddler needed more of my attention. (laughs) So I am... uh, I left my job. I've worked in hospice the last eight years. Um... I was burnt out probably within about a year or two, and then um, I had a daughter who was stillborn, and that wasn't easy. I went back to work there, um, and then after I had Cora in 2014, or 2017, sorry, um, I just decided I didn't want to work. Pardon our toddler <laughs> sorry. background there. Sorry. Music voiceover <laughs> by Cora. Um, so just finding out a way to be able to stay home with her. So oh. the end of April, I was able to stop work and stay home. So now I sell Pamper Chef and run interference all day long. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, being a social worker. So you you first became a social worker. Um, out of undergrad, I wasn't a social worker by title per se. I majored in psychology. Um, and I think all in our twenties, I think most of us who are called to a helping profession want to save the world. They don't know how they want to save the world, but so you have to figure out how to do that. Um, so we, I worked at a group home here in town for about 18 months. 
um, with children who'd been abused and neglected. Um, they were all in DSS custody for the most part. And um, DSS means? Department of Social Services. Okay. These were kids who had pretty much um, either been taken from their homes due to physical, emotional, sexual abuse. Um, just, I'm still traumatized by some of the stories I've heard with those kids. Um, and we were, our job was to try to reunify them with their families if possible. Um, but basically teaching them things like coping skills, how to dress yourself, try to teach them some level of behavior management that already we, we serve kids between five and 12 and you just knew that so much was irrevocably broken at that point. Um, so I did that first and I got burnt out there and I decided my next job, I had to have my paycheck secure the bank, step one, <laughs> and step two were that I not get assaulted every day. So I then went to do case management for mental health for adults and children. Did that for about two years, almost three. Um, worked mostly with Medicaid-funded clients. Um the company I worked for decided to stop providing that service with Medicaid cuts. I got laid off. I went back to grad school that fall. Um, and of the things I could have chosen, I chose hospice. Um, I did my internship with them and have stayed with them since early 2011. So that's it. That's a good amount of time. Yeah. So you have a master's in social work. I have a master's in social work and I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, as well. So that means um, I'm able to do therapy um, and counseling and bill. Which, so it gives me a lot of versatility in where I'm able to work and what kind of work I'm able to do. Okay, cool. So, but you're not doing that now. You haven't done private counseling at this point? I have time. not done private practice um, because hospice had my heart for such a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and hospice is covered under right. Medicare and Medicaid and it's a comprehensive service as opposed to like um, a separate billable service like there. Hi. Okay. Hi. So, of course, talking to the Sorry. corner. Hey. Hey, <laughs> no, she can, she can keep talking. It's just, she was just making me laugh that she was <laughs> talking to the corner. Are you high? Hi. Are you high up? Yeah. Can you get down? Hi. Before you fall? Hi. Hi. So, this is a caregiver life <laughs> where we have um, real life caregivers who do podcasts with us. And we've spoken with um, some caregivers who have three, four, five children, and there's all kinds of things that are going on when we do our podcast, and we love it. Okay. We're, we're organic in our podcast. There's nothing um, overtly professional about us at all, but but this is what we call this caregiver life. It's, it is. It's, it's a different level of caregiving. It's the kind of caregiving I think many women, I don't want to say all women, but many women get to hope to be able to experience. So I'm really grateful that I'm at a point where we can do that. Yeah, I'm excited for you too. So when you when you think about um, burnout, you know, we our listeners know that I take care of my husband who is ALS, among other things. And what we've talked about self-care on another podcast and um, we talk about some of the problems and issues that I face. But that is from my perspective. That is being, you know, the family caregiver mm -hmm. situation, not professional. Mm -hmm. And so I, burnout, I think, looks a little bit different because I, as I know as a teacher, mm -hmm. 
I would have 30 kids in a classroom, mm-hmm. and we all know they remember my name. Mm-hmm. And three months after they were out of my classroom, I'd be lucky to remember one of theirs because mm-hmm. there's one of me and 30 of them. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a whole different situation when you have many mm-hmm. that you are tracking and caring for and following and ensuring that they have services and that they have the support that they need, in your particular case as a hospice mm-hmm. social worker, getting through to, to the end of life, mm-hmm. which we all try to do as well as we can, or many of us try to do as well as we can. What, what are some of the early signs of burnout that you identified in yourself? I guess they're not, they don't have to be. They're not like, always global. early. They're sneaky. Um, um, I think burnout just looks really different. Um, a lot of my, my peers, you know, our culture is very pro-alcohol, which is fine. But I think, you know, there are people who definitely drink more than they should. I'm not a drinker. I grew up in a house that drinking was bad. <laughs> so a lot of us compensate with food. So, you know, like, you want to go out to eat? Sure, great. So I think that's some, some of it. Um, just fatigue. Um, and it eventually becomes just about getting the job done. It's not about that drive to, to be the better person to to, to sit with somebody in that space and hold that space for them gets harder. You're, you're, you're focused on what's coming next or, or what, what do you need to do or what time it is. Um, you almost always want to check your phone and go, Oh, I have to run mm-hmm. because you're not invested in what's going on in front of you. And so I think those are things that we just dismiss to a rough week or as a, you know, it's just not a good day. That family doesn't particularly care for us. And you're starting to feel sometimes that families don't like you, and they probably don't because you're not invested in what they have to say and what they have to share with you. And they don't necessarily choose you. You're, no, they you're don't assigned choose me. them. You're, yes, we're assigned. You get a nurse and a social worker 99% of the time. Why do I need a social worker? I'm not going to a nursing home. Mm. <laughs> it's like, well, no, but there, there are lots of other things that social workers do do mm-hmm. that are helpful for families, not just in that context. So when did you um, when did you see that in yourself when you began to feel oh, that way about four years ago about four years ago but um, after losing my daughter it was hard to tell what was my own grief and my own junk which definitely contributed to my burnout versus my genuine frustration and burnout within the job mm-hmm. and and you can't tease those two things apart. You can't. It's kind of lumped together. It is yeah. lumped together, and, yeah. and you and you have to. So 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 many people, and especially with your providers, we're helpers. We we push through. Mm-hmm. You know, so so pushing through was was a good thing. I think for me, um, going to work gave me purpose. Allow me to focus on other people's grief, mm-hmm. but I think long term that shortchanged my families a lot, and that wasn't good for them. So keeping that lens of what's the best interest for your patient or your client isn't always forefront when you're burnt out. Can you now see when you look back when you first started as a hospice social Mm -hmm. worker, um, the transition over time in yourself and the difference in how it was for your families and the experience you had, and maybe you don't really even know, you know, because the families, they they only, they know you of the now. Mm -hmm. They don't know you of two years ago. And right. for them, it maybe have been everything to them that you were there. I hear, of course, in the ALS community, 
many good things about hospice. Mm-hmm. And people are very um, hesitant to want to be in hospice, mm-hmm. and they're nervous about it. And then after their loved one passes, they praise hospice, mm-hmm. that they're so grateful that hospice was there for them. So they can't, they can't see the difference. But for you, you can see the difference. I can. It's funny. I think when I first started with hospice, I worked in Pender County. Um, but I would go and sit with a family for two hours. No problem. No big deal. Loved, and I loved it. I'd sit on somebody's porch with no air conditioning and talk to them for an hour, hour and a half. Not bad an eyelash. You want me to run up there on a Saturday, which I only did once, but you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I I found myself wanting to go the extra mile and I can, and as I moved back more into Wilmington, because again, where you serve definitely comes into play. Um, you want to be cautious about that, but I would go spend an hour with a family. No problem. Towards the end, I'd look at my time lock at the end of the day. On average, I spent 37 minutes with somebody. Wow. That was an intake. That was an admission. That wasn't a routine, hey, how are you? This this was somebody I was meeting for the first time. So for me, when I started noticing that on average, me spending an hour with the family was, was a long visit for me, that, that was indicative mm-hmm. that we needed to move on and figure out something else. Mm-hmm. What what are what is another sign of of burnout that you identified? Um, irritability, like um, anxiety, like especially a, a lot of times we struggle at night to turn the brain off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you're not able to really be present at home the way you would like. So um, that was always hard. It was whatever wasn't done. And trying to split your focus between your family. It's like, oh, I have to answer that. <laughs> or, or you get some degree of hypervigilance about I'm the only one that can help this family. Or I need to answer that because they were in distress. I told them they could call me today or those kinds of things. But um, I just remember, last, especially the last year, um, that, you know, having a toddler doesn't help your sleep anyway. It's just the hamster wheel is always running. Even when I'm mm-hmm. asleep, you just have that restless sleep that you're thinking and worrying. And and that's always stressful. So, and what, Were there any other symptoms of burnout? I mean, those are huge. Right. So Those are huge. And they're exhausting. They're exhausting. Um, but that's the thing about burnout is you don't know your burnout until it's screaming at you. So that's why they talk about doing the self-care piece all along so that you don't get – because it's every day becomes the same, even though it's a little bit different. You just get lost in this is what I do. And eight to five, Monday through Friday, Sunday night sneaks up on you and you start all over again. Well, what kind of things are recommended for self-care when you're a professional? I don't, um, I don't know that they're the same as when you're not a professional. Well, I think the self-care, we, and it's one of the things I'm learning as it's not bubble baths and stopping and having a slice of cake. Those things are a good thing. But it's really taking time to um, shape your day. It, it's more planning than I would like. Uh, there are things I would typically have wanted to just happen organically, not doing anything. But I found that it's my meal plan for the week. Mm-hmm. Or... Um, my husband writing down his schedule instead of me guessing. It helps me at work because I know what's coming when I get home. Hi. Um, Hi. Yes, it's hiding. Um, then 
those were things that were really helpful. Um, making sure my laundry was wow. done. Going to therapy yourself um, is a wonderful thing to do. Walking. Um, so things, self-care for a professional is just as important for a caregiver who's not a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and as caregivers and even as professional caregivers, we go, oh, no, we don't have to. We can do that tomorrow. But tomorrow doesn't look the same as today does. So finding that 10 minutes tomorrow gets way harder than the 10 minutes today. But you advocate that for your right. clients, though. But we don't, add, we don't do it for ourselves. You don't push it on yourself no. to make sure that you're doing that for yourself. No. So, I mean, I agree so much about, you know, self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, a pedicure is a little tiny Band-Aid. And sometimes that's all somebody can do is a pedicure oh, to get out. Right. Um, but there are tricks to that, too, like bring a book. Oh. Mm-hmm. Or wear headphones. Mm-hmm. So unless you want to talk to people who are giving you a pedicure. Yeah. But a lot of times when we need self-care, we need quiet. Mm-hmm. We need to really be in our own space when we do that. And sometimes the only thing we can do is get out and get that manicure or get that pedicure. Or My favorite time of day the last couple of years was my husband brought her home most days. So if I got home about 4 o'clock, because our job was pretty remote, I would sit down with a plate of cheese and a Diet Dr. Pepper and some pretzels, and it was absolutely quiet here. There was no phone, just quiet, and it was my favorite time It's luxurious. It's just, and people are like, are you sad? I'm like, no. Like, I don't want to solve anything. I don't want to fix anything for anybody. I don't want to jump up. I just want to take a minute and just be, and and. That's a hard thing to learn as a clinician is to just be with whatever is. And, and try not to problem solve all those things. Right. Because so much of what you dealt with, you can't fix most of the problems. No. I'm not a nurse. I can't go in and see someone's in pain and give them Haldol and Ativan. That's, mm-hmm. not, that's not my purview. Mm-hmm. They want me to go in and go, well, I can't take care of them. I have to work full time. Mm-hmm. Put them in a nursing home. But we don't have money to pay for that. And I'm like, well, you make about 50 bucks too much for Medicaid, mm-hmm. so you're just kind of shit out of luck. Yes. And to be able to say that to people in a compassionate way mm-hmm. and support them for however long it takes to take care of their loved one in that fashion mm-hmm. is really hard. Because the nurses and the families are like, why can't you fix it? They don't see the point in your coming if you can't fix it for them. Mm-hmm. They don't see the value in you being there and... Being able to just listen Mm -hmm. to that. My sister and I just had that conversation Mm -hmm. today. My mom's been diagnosed with early Alzheimer's and is currently with my sister. We're working on other living situations that's going to be good for everybody. And she had a lot of things to say today when I I was on my way to get my hair cut, which was my self-care. By the way, that's really nice. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And um, she said... You know, there's no solutions. I just need to say these things. And it's true. You do sometimes just need somebody who will just listen without trying to fix anything because we can't fix my mom and I can't, nobody can fix the situation right now. And I can't go move to San Rafael, California tomorrow. So we're stuck with what we have, but we have to listen. And, but I, but I have that on such a limited basis and you had it so much, so frequently. My caseload average anywhere between 25 and 40 patients over the last two years. 
Um, I was not as high as some others. Some were closer to 40, 45 and that 35, 45 range. Wow. And 35 is doable. It's busy and it's doable. But you're also, when you're managing 35 people, you can't stop and do the things you need to do. You're, you're going all day, every day. When you hit 40 and 45, you're just checking a box and going on. Mm-hmm. Top of my head. Cora's giving some self-care to Jean right yes. now. She's massaging my head with a ball. <laughs> it has little nubbies on it, so it's, it's almost a- like a real massage ball. Yeah. We're going to time out. We'll take a little bit of a break from our interview with Jean, and then we'll get right back to uh, to wrapping up that interview. I just wanted to give a little shout out to Marjorie Pennington. Marjorie is a Elizabeth Dole Foundation fellow, and she's a military caregiver. She recently had her first book published, Bringing the War Home, The Life of a Military Caregiver. You can get that on Amazon through the Kindle edition, or you can get the paperback version. I recently read Marjorie's book myself. And I found it to be a very, very deeply moving book about how faith uh, was always there for her, although it maybe seemed like it was in the background at times and and then laced through her life and sometimes the most powerful piece that got her through some of her more difficult caregiving days. Marjorie's young, so she has many years of caregiving ahead of us, and I, I hope that she continues to write about it and share her story with us. I'm going to reach out to Marjorie and hopefully... Marjorie will join us for an interview at some point in the future. Now back to our interview with Jean. Okay, well, we're back from our break. Um, and we're, we're going to wrap up our, our time with Jean. And she has Cora, who needs a little attention, I think, here too. Um, so, so here would be, I think, one of the questions if I was listening to this podcast that um, I would have, what are you going to do now? Oh. I think that's one of the things, the helpers, the nurses, the doctors, the social workers of the world, the therapists, we're never done. I think teachers are the same way. Once you're a teacher, you're always a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why you have your hands in so many different pots. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really like uh, ooh, to work with you. Did that hurt? To work, come here. Come here. Ouch. Ouch. Sorry. To work with families who have experienced um, stillbirth or miscarriage. Um, you and me kiss. Is that better? Better. Um, see, caregiving. Um, but we lost a little girl. That should be five years tomorrow. Um, we were 23 weeks pregnant. We weren't anticipating that. Um, we knew there was some trouble, but nobody ever mentioned her not surviving. So um, after that, it really kind of became my passion to make sure that other people never felt alone. Because we never felt alone. And I know so many women, and especially husbands, not even so much other women, but husbands feel so alone and isolated when it happens. Um, we've only experienced a stillbirth and a miscarriage. And if somebody who's on her 12th miscarriage... You know, people just keep up and keep going. So I would really like to work with those families. Um, I started a Facebook page um, called The Hope Project. Um, And it really started out of, um, it was for me. It wasn't really for anybody else. It it was for me to share my story, but also give other people some sense that they are not alone. 
Mm-hmm. Sorry, she's climbing on her stool. Um, so that's kind of my next move. I would like to figure out how to kind of turn that into a nonprofit or um, seek to support people in that way. So, like I see you doing podcasts. We talked about that yeah. off of our recording earlier. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like to make it a nonprofit. Um, I see it kind of as a clinic, mm-hmm. as um, you know, maybe have a nurse on staff. Well, thank you, Jean, for joining us. We look forward to seeing your Hope Project grow. We know that started out of um, a deep place in your heart, and we look forward to, or I look forward to seeing uh, where you take the Hope Project and how many more lives you impact in such a positive way. You're a positive person. You've handled your grief so well. You're so unbelievably transparent in how you share with us. Uh, the things that a lot of people are not comfortable sharing but need to hear. And as always on our podcast, I believe that there are people who listen to our podcasts who need to hear what we have to say, and maybe they didn't even know it until they heard what we were talking about today. So I hope that we've helped some of you listening. If you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd like to be a guest, please send us a message. We look forward to hearing from you. And um, until the next time.